0: My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Jeanette Beckman has that all-important ingredient in today's marketplace. She's not a rapper, an influencer, or a model who skateboards, or anything of the sort who traffics on their Instagram followers to build a career. Not that there's anything wrong with that, it's just that it's not Jeanette. Jeanette Beckman is a British-born photographer who has made a career of following her musical tastes and cultural preferences. The purity of her vision and politics has given her an aura of authenticity which is something that no amount of money or number of followers can buy. It's hard-earned and based on years of taking photos of unknowns and outsiders, some who went on to fame and fortune in the music industry, and many, many more anonymous men and women she saw on the street and responded to in a way that made them feel special. You may recognize some of the more famous ones from the British punk days, like Paul Weller, Pete Townsend of The Who, The Police, Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Jam, Boy George. You get the point. Whereas she could have settled into a nice, safe career in London, she was drawn to New York City during the early days of hip-hop, shooting a teenage LL Cool J, Run DMC, Africa Bambaataa, and many more before they... Or photos that Jeanette took of them became iconic, and then there's a third aspect of her work—one that makes her special among a group of photographers who were in the right place at the right time. She's also a renowned street photographer. In fact, on her website, she calls herself a British documentary photographer. Welcome, Jeanette Beckman.
1: Hi, David. Nice to see you.
0: Hi. Yeah. Thanks for coming on thanks the show.
1: For
0: me. So. Yeah, let's start with the last point first, which is a street photographer, because that in itself has turned into a career with the rise of Instagram and influencers who dress to be discovered on the street walking. (laughs) So where does that fit in your conception of street photography? You know what I'm saying, right? The fashion shows, the street photographers are waiting, and then they put it on their blogs. How different is that from anything you think of?
1: Well, I totally hear what you're saying. I really started doing street photography. And I mean, what is now called street photography, probably back when I started taking pictures in the punk era. I photographed these guys called the Islington Twins, which were just two guys standing outside in this college where I was teaching. You know, they're identical twins. They look amazing. I mean, they were standing on the street and I took a picture of them. To me, it's not really about fashion. It's more about style and attitude. And yeah, I know this genre of street photography, so-called, has become massive now. And especially with all the fashionistas following what's going on on the street, I get it. But I think my stuff is a little different. It's more about the people and what they're wearing. And it's about them, their attitude and, you know, street style.
0: It's also socio-cultural, isn't it? I mean, you're not exactly looking for the people who are at the fashion shows. You're looking at people who aren't generally looked at or or noticed or recognized necessarily.
1: Absolutely, I don't hang around fashion shows, and had the privilege of working with some amazing fashion brands in my later years. But that's because they like my street eye. In the mid-90s, I started, when I wasn't working, just jumping on the train in New York City and going with my Hasselblad and just getting off at random stops, places I'd never been to in the outer boroughs, just walking around on the street looking for people that caught my eye that I thought would be interesting to photograph. And my uh, Hasselblad is a kind of unusual looking camera, and I would just go up to them and say hi, would you mind if I took your picture? You look amazing. Or, you know, I love your hat and start a conversation. And, you know, it's really about doing portraits of the neighborhoods and the people in the neighborhoods rather than spotting somebody wearing some fabulous Prada outfit.
0: Right. But still style is a big part of it, isn't it? It's, it's, and that's something you have an eye for, that comes out in the photos because even those two twins you mentioned I I know that photo and how they're standing in a particular way and and they're wearing the same clothes aren't they identical they look very cool and hip but they're not obviously not fashion at that time at least
1: right well they were mods at the time and they're wearing parkas and locs and they looked amazing to me but it's It's not fashion as in fashion brands, but it's definitely about style and people. I mean, you have to think about it. In some ways, everybody in the world gets up in the morning and has to put clothes on pretty much. And the choice of what sneakers you're going to wear, what socks you're wearing, everybody's from... When kids start to be aware, little kids, when they're four and five to when you're in your 90s, you're still making those decisions about the way you present yourself to the world every morning. But it's not specifically what we call fashion. You're right. It's about style and the way you wear the clothes.
0: But isn't it interesting how these fashion brands, Dior, which I know you shot part of their campaign, right? Was it 2019? Twice, yeah. Yeah, twice. So you mentioned that they were interested in your street style and your eye. So it's interesting and ironic, isn't it, that these photos that you took totally non-commercial probably moving you in this direction or at least giving you opportunity to make a, a decent pay working for Dior out of those things that you did for love.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. Maria Gracia, who, you know, became the creative director at Dior, I think in 2016, she's an amazing woman. She's also a feminist. She likes working with women. And the first time I got that call from her staff in Paris, I was actually at, you'll appreciate this, David, I was at a a street art festival in Detroit, taking photographs of street artists doing murals and I was sitting in a parking lot in a kind of dodgy area of Detroit just looking at my photos on my camera you know the whole load of crack vials around me and my phone goes I pick it up and this guy's going hello this is Sebastian from Christian Dio in Paris we would like you to come to Paris next week if you're available to photograph Maria Grazia's first collection I was Honestly, I thought it was somebody playing <laughs> a prank on me. It
0: was Borat. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: It was the most unlikely thing. You know, here I am in my dogged out jeans and sneakers, as usual, was sitting in amongst a whole bunch of crack vials.
0: Perfect. Detroit,
1: and somebody's asking me if I want to go to Paris. I mean, and it was amazing. Obviously, we had some conversation and I realized it was a, it was a real thing when they sent me the air ticket. So I went and the first day I got there off the plane, I had a meeting with Maria Grazia and, you know, I'm just there. I don't dress in high fashion, dear. I'm still in my jeans. I maybe got some like a little nice. I go to her office and she's like, so what would you like to do while you're here? How would you like to do this? And I was thinking that she was going to tell me what she wanted me to shoot, but this totally wasn't the case so i just said well the show is like a week away and i'd like to shoot the show in kind of a backstage way the same way as you would shoot bands backstage in the punk era and she said that's great and i worked there for a week shooting pretty much 12 to 14 hours a day and i was shooting the tailors making the clothes the ladies sewing on the sequins the models at the go-sees and all of it I had a carte blanche to go wherever I wanted and I decided everything was going to be black and white and I was downloading it. I had my friend working and then I just kept shooting and shooting and shooting and I got even Jones making hats for her and just all of it. I was at the show, the paparazzi, I got everybody and it it was really an incredible week. And the very last day after the show and the hoo-ha and being at the parties and all of that, I was standing there and Maria was doing a kind of guided tour of the collection for some buyers. And the head of PR, this guy Olivier, comes up to me and he just taps me on the shoulder and he goes, Jeanette, we love everything you did. And I'm like, oh, wow. And that was it. That was my week in Paris. And then, you know... A couple of years later last year, they hired me again to shoot the collection on the streets of London where I'd shot all these punk bands in Kentish Town. And it was cold and models were freezing and we were standing outside and we'd had a whole day scouting which walls we were going to shoot on. But there's nothing better than a client that lets you do what you do.
0: Yeah. And it's so unusual what's happened in the fashion world in that respect from the days when everything would be so like micromanaged and, you know, every pose and makeup and hair and all those things to the max where now everything is trying to look more street.
1: Right. Exactly. It's only taken me about 40 years for all of this (laughs) to come around. Yeah. I mean, I just pretty much have kept my vision in this kind of, You know, I've kept in my lane, so to speak. I mean, even when I was working with you guys for Paper Magazine back in the day, I mean, it was still, we weren't shooting high fashion models.
0: Yeah, well, that was part of what, (laughs) you know, the the appeal of the magazine. But that also came from the influence of the, the British style magazines face among them where you had also worked at, right? Weren't you in the first issue even?
1: Oh, totally. In fact, that picture of the Islington twins that I just had taken because, you know, they looked amazing and I couldn't help myself but photograph them. That was a full page in the first issue of The Face. And those guys became mini celebrities. And they had a show at the Victorian Albert Museum, I don't know, about 10 years later about street fashion. And that photo was blown up 12 foot high in the entrance. And It was just two kids in college. But I thought they
0: looked amazing. Yeah, you were right. I was right. It's, it's lasted. It has. So what happened? So you were on your way to a career, shooting all those great bands, plugged in, looks like, to the scene and, and to the publications. And then you came to New York. Why? What happened?
1: First thing that happened was that I walked in, in 1976 or 77. I had a portfolio of photos no bands in it whatsoever and i walked into weekly music magazine called sounds with my portfolio and i met this woman who was actually a features editor at the time that we both know vivian goldman and shout out to vivian
0: vivian who's now also coming out with a new record i saw by the way (laughs) yes
1: amazing right (laughs) it's incredible she's amazing Anyway, and she was like, oh, I like your photos. Why don't you go and photograph Susie and the Banshees tonight? And I'd never shot a band in my life. So that's how I started working for Sounds and then Melody Maker and then The Face. I shot everybody, The Clash, Boy George, album covers for The Police, The Raincoats, all these bands. And then in 1982, I was working for Melody Maker. And we were having a weekly meeting. And they're like, oh, there's this hip hop review which I think was where I first
0: met you, David, perhaps? Oh, yes, I believe so. I I don't remember who it was, but we had a mutual friend in New York who said, you know, you should meet with Jeanette when you go to London. Right, who was And that was how we first connected. Uh, We're talking about this European rap tour that was historic, and actually now i just came from uh, the museum of fine arts in boston where there's a you know a basquiat and hip hop exhibition going on which is really fantastic oh, wow. and one of the pieces in there is a futura uh, painting that he did live uh, cuz part of the show was you know we had africa bambada we had uh, artists like futura fab five Freddy, ramel z ramel z Dondi, Phase 2, you know, all the brilliant guys. So we would do these shows and then Futura would, would paint in the background and I guess the others would too. But this piece of his is now in this exhibition. That So now this show that we're talking about, this tour, is now finally being recognized for what it was. You know, it was a very influential moment that brought hip-hop to Europe.
1: It was the first time we'd ever seen hip-hop and I put up my hand and said I wanted to go photograph it. I didn't really know what it was. I went down to the hotel where everybody was staying. You must have been there too. It was kind of like some sleazy B&B at the back of Victoria Station. And I just started running around taking photos of everybody because people looked so different from the London punks, which were a little dark and dreary by that time. And here were all these people that seemed to have this really vibrant energy I was just taking pictures in that afternoon. I think I photographed Bambata, Futura, uh, Dondi, Grand Mixer, DST, the Double Dutch Girls, the Rocksteady crew. They were all just posing for me in the hotel, and Futura and Dondi tagged a dumpster for me. And it was really cool. And then I went to the show in the evening, and just as you describe, everything was happening on stage all at the same time. Five Freddy was on the mic, Bam was mixing, you know, Futura's, like I have a picture actually, Futura's painting a backdrop. And, you know, Rocksteady crew are breaking. And it was really, it was like a renaissance moment for me because I had never seen anything like this or heard anything like this in my life. And I just thought it was so alive and exciting, and so many things that I loved going on at the same time. And so the story ran in Melody Maker, and the writer wrote, this rapping thing is just a fad like skateboarding. It won't
0: last. <laughs> yeah, no, let's <laughs> not name that writer. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. And, yeah, I think you got that wrong. And a couple of months later, I came to New York to visit a friend, and I just ended up staying because, you know, everything was happening all around. Trains covered in graffiti, kids walking around with boomboxes. Ended up moving to the East Village and living actually in the same building as you.
0: 131 <laughs> Avenue B. This is, yes. oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> now the world knows. Send all your merch uh, to me. Thank you.
1: <laughs> oh Yeah. Sorry, David. Right. I forgot. You're still there. Anyway, but. Well, you could edit that out if you have to. You know, and I just had gone on to the next thing. It was the next kind of rebel. I mean, it had a lot of similarities to punk to me in that it was a culture that came from the streets in bad economic times and kids that didn't have a future really. There was no possibility of getting jobs New York, like London, was also broke. And you could see that it had sparked this amazing creativity. And I just uh, I fell in love with it.
0: Yeah, and the thing is about those kids, I wasn't so much of a kid, but certainly they were a kid. They were so optimistic and, and positive compared to the punk attitude. Here was uh, people who had very little, in most cases, but still like feeling, wow, look at this. We have our music, we have our art, we can dance, we can have a life within all of that. And it caught on like wildfire.
1: You're absolutely right. Everything you just said is absolutely right. And that, to me, is one of the biggest differences between the punk movement where everything is shit. You know, you're in England, the weather sucks and you're dealing with the class system and all of that. And then you come here and there was some kind of incredible optimism. And speaking about fashion, it was like you may have wanted to wear, you know, Gucci, but you could go and buy a Gucci bag ripoff on Canal Street for five bucks. Or some genius like Dapper Dan would make you a whole suit for I don't even know what. The creativity was amazing, and on so many different levels. The art scene was just amazing, and living in the East Village, there was like an art opening every 10
0: minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and then not to mention all the stuff that was on the walls when you were walking around, all the murals.
0: And somehow you can still ignore the terrible side of everything that was going on with the South Bronx. Oh, yeah is burning. You know, the drug dealing is going on like crazy. People are getting killed in the street. But within that, there was this little world where everyone was really excited and working and being creative. And one of my mantras is, you know, creative people are most happy when they're being creative. So if you're being creative and doing your thing, everything else kind of falls by the wayside and you don't really respond to it in the same way.
1: I think that's absolutely right, because I remember there was a crack house around the corner from Avenue B on, I think, 7th Street or something. I remember sitting in a friend's car after a photo shoot late at night, and we were just watching people going in and out of this house, you know. And <laughs> even though that was happening, yeah, the East Village was sort of a scary place, but for me, it didn't seem scary at all. And I'd been living in Stratham before that. It was a poorish working class neighborhood, and there were a lot of skinheads. There were certain places you didn't walk because, like the skinheads, like you wouldn't walk in this tunnel under the railway because you could get beaten up or mugged. None of this really seemed to bother me. Also, not being from here, I don't think I really understood quite how dangerous it perhaps was.
0: Which is probably a good thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it was that was great for me, you know, going to photograph Bambata in the Bronx. I didn't know what the Bronx was, so I was fine getting on the train and going there. I was like, oh, where's this? It was great for me because I, w- I wasn't from here. And when I would go to a place like the Bronx, people would know that, you know, my accent, you're not from here. And it would start a conversation. And I think for me, as a white woman walking around in these neighborhoods, nobody bothered me because... I don't know. I think the accent, everybody was very nice to me.
0: Well, people were just nice. I mean, you know, there was this huge... I mean, people were just nice, yeah, yeah. you know, we're all programmed, right, to, to a certain extent, to believe that if we go into these areas, we're going to be immediately attacked. <laughs> but that's as right. we know from our own experiences, that's usually not the case. It's actually the opposite. Yeah,
1: absolutely right. Yeah, I have this book that actually just came out on a uh, reissue on Dashwood of series I did on an East LA gang in 1983. And I was just fascinated. I'd read about them in LA Weekly or something, and I got a hookup and went there. And I spent a whole summer going back and forth phot- photographing these guys in this park called the Oyo Maravilla. It was the Oyo Maravilla gang. And everybody's like, you're crazy. It's really dangerous. And I'd just go there and hang out and do portraits of people. And people were being shot on the daily right there. But I never saw any of it because I was just there with my camera taking pictures of a bunch of teenagers.
0: And you felt comfortable in that environment. Is is there anything in your background that would indicate that this is something that you were destined to do?
1: Probably not. I always knew that I wanted to be an artist. And I grew up in a, what we would call a pretty middle class family. My mom was really into art. So I used to go to little art classes with her once a week. I knew I wanted to go to art school. And I was very shy in school. I was extremely shy. Because I was in the same school from the age of three to 17. And I used to hide in the art room. That was my, my refuge. And when I came out, I was like, I can't be this shy person. And when I took up photography, I realized it's kind of an entree into meeting people. Like you could walk up to somebody and say, can I take your picture? And, you know, they're pretty much going to say yes. People very rarely say no to me. And that's how it worked, really. I've never really been afraid of walking around on streets.
0: And so when you came to New York, how did you... You hook up again with this scene that you so were enchanted by, impressed by, that you first saw in London. I also want you to talk about your famous photo of LL Cool J because you mentioned the boombox.
1: So, when I got here, the British magazines like The Face and Melody Maker knew that I was now living in New York. The Brits are very obsessed with music and they always want to know what's going on. So, they would call me and go, Oh, you know, there's this new group called Run DMC. Have you ever heard of them? Here's a phone number. And they'd give me the phone number and it would turn out to be Jam Master Jay's mom or something. And I would go meet them in Hollis. I took a picture of them in 1984. That's kind of a pretty famous picture right now. But I didn't know who they were. I had a portfolio of pictures of punks and I was going around the record companies and nobody would give me work. Because they said my work was too gritty. I had people with bad hairdos and it wasn't, airbrushing was fashionable back then. So I couldn't get work shooting bands. I thought I would be able to get work shooting bands, but it didn't work out like that. So I was working for the Brit magazines, shooting a lot of early hip hop. And one day I walked into Leo Cohen's office to show him my portfolio. And I think it it was on Broadway somewhere. It was like not a glamorous office. Def Jam was just a little label at the time, much like these other ones I was working for, like Next Plateau and Sleeping Bag. And I remember walking in the office and I was a little bit intimidated (laughs) because Leo was there and he had his feet up on the desk. He was smoking a cigar and he was shouting down the phone. $100,000, you know, whatever, doing some huge business deal, puffing on his cigar, and he's like waving at me, just wait over there. So I, I waited till he finished and then approached and showed him my portfolio. And he's like, oh, we'll probably find something for you to do. And then a few weeks later, he sends LL Cool J around to my studio, which was on Franklin Street at the time. And that was LL Cool J's first press shoot, I believe he was like 16 or 17 years old and he just came in and I had my lights set up and I was like okay we'll stand here put the boombox on his shoulder I took the shot and that that was it I probably took a few more shots that day but that shot became the ll shot that a lot of people recognize you know recognize and it's just one of those moments. I think it's just like a moment in time.
0: Well, I'm thinking about the one in the subway. Isn't there another I one? I
1: do not have a picture of LL in the subway. Oh no, that's somebody else. Oh, okay, maybe. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. I thought it's I so saw good. it on
0: your website. In fact, but um, was that in your studio then? Did you have him?
1: Yeah, I was living in a loft on um, Franklin Street. You can see it. He's holding
0: up a boombox. One other thing is uh, women in hip-hop. You're a feminist. You've said earlier on that's something that matters to you. You're a woman photographer as well because women always get the short end of the stick for most part, right? But women in hip-hop was also was something happening in the back. And there was recently that movie, right, that Lisa Cortez did, the remix, which talks about fashion and hip-hop particularly, but it also brings up this point uh, that i want to address which is women not getting the recognition they deserve for the work they're doing
1: hip-hop was definitely a male-driven culture for quite a time and then salt and pepper came along and they did that song called let's talk about sex and i think that kind of changed everything for women they were kind of in the vanguard and somebody like MC Light with that amazing song, I Crammed to Understand You, that she wrote when I think she was 14 years old about her boyfriend at the time. Suddenly women started to have power in hip-hop and that was really amazing. And actually, we did a big shoot for paper.
0: That's right, women in hip-hop. Mm-hmm. That was a whole section, right?
1: And I don't know if you remember, we were shooting it in some Mexican restaurants off West Broadway somewhere that happened to have this kind of stage. So we had the lights set up and all the women came down. Let's see who's there. Well, Millie Jackson, Sparky D. I mean, there was an amazing collection of women. And they came down, a lot of them were with their boyfriends and they were like, no men are allowed in the room. They all had to go and leave and come back in a while. That
0: was your idea or their idea? No,
1: it wasn't my idea. I think it was... Whoever was organizing, was it Kim was organizing that? <laughs> Possibly,
0: probably. Maybe it yeah. was you. I and, know, it wasn't me.
1: And they were there to have a roundtable discussion, and I got that picture of all of them sitting on stage together. And it was amazing the camaraderie. I mean, even though well, hip hop is known for adversarial ad
0: beefs, beefs. Yeah,
1: beefs. Everybody got along. And it, that's an amazing moment in time to get a group like that there. It was great. But yeah, I mean, it came a time when, you know, women started to take over and you look at hip hop now, it's full of
0: incredible women. I might even say that they are actually leading hip hop.
1: Yeah, I think they are, actually. I really think they are. And it's, it's a great thing and it's good timing. I mean, totally,
0: totally. As you continued your street photography, which I'm particularly a fan of, in general, but certainly in your work, particularly, you're continuing to do that. Even today, this terrible climate that we're in, in some ways, there's a lot of stuff going on in the streets, whether it's empty streets or people right. marching in the streets from one extreme to the other. So you're out there still looking for photos or people. What is it? Do you look for people or do you look for photos?
1: I live downtown, as you know, and during COVID, It was strange. It was like being in a ghost town. Everything was locked up and doors were boarded up. In fact, one night I was sitting in my loft and the window faces onto the street and I heard all this shouting. It was about nine o'clock at night, I think sometime in like April maybe. And I just kind of put my coat on and rushed downstairs with my camera. And there was this group of protesters running down Lafayette Street. I watched them as they, and I followed them and I took some pictures of them and they were protesters and they were very angry and followed them for a few blocks. And I think it was that same night when I left them around Spring Street and they made a right and pretty much destroyed Soho. Oh, oh, That
0: was that group?
1: Yeah, I think it was that group. But, you know, there were a lot of demonstrations. And of course, you're on lockdown, but you're following the news and the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and Brianna Taylor. And all of that had a real effect on me. And I decided to go out and document the Black Lives Matter protests that were just pretty much happening all around me. Walk out onto Second Avenue, and they were marching up Second Avenue in their hundreds. You know, you'd go to Washington Square, and there they are. So yeah, I decided to really make a thing. And you're right. In the worst of times, if you can be creative, I mean, that saved me. I was out photographing people, and I wanted to try and document the movement and also capture some of the faces. And it was an amazing mix of mostly younger people of all sorts carrying homemade signs. And they were really angry about what's been happening in the country. And they were really angry about the history here. And this has been going on for hundreds of years. And they had something to say. And it was just an amazing thing to document them and follow them and then the bike protests started and I just bought a bicycle right at the beginning of COVID. So I started going on the bike protests and we'd ride from, you know, Canal Street up to Harlem and protest and people would cheer us on and I was trying to figure out how to ride my bicycle yeah. and take pictures <laughs>
0: with a camera. It's a long ride too, how to how do you keep up with that?
1: Because mostly everybody's half my age for a start, but you know I managed somehow to figure it out. And it was very inspiring. The passion of people was very inspiring. And I just had this strong urge to document what was going on. And I'm really glad I did. I documented the closed stores. I documented the art that was being made. You know, just go out on a pretty much daily basis with my camera. Because, let's face it, there wasn't anything else going (laughs) on. And take photos And that's what I did during COVID. And now things have changed and things have shifted. And, of course, we've got the up-and-coming election, which also being involved in trying to get the vote out. And now those things are almost history now. They're an important part of history.
0: Very much, yes, totally. Yeah, so that's the story. There's two more things I want to talk about. One is your mashups which is like taking you've taken your photographs and you've matched them up with artists and asked them to do something anything right as far as you're concerned you don't really tell them what to do but on a on a photo so
1: the mashup is a really special project to me it's very close to my heart and it was an idea that came to say Adams the artist when we were going to do a show together and we were talking about what we were going to do and he's like I have an idea I'm going to get my friends to draw on your photos and I was like that's a crazy idea why are we going to do that and it was 2014 he got 10 artists to draw on top of my hip-hop photos and the way it went down I would send them a PDF. They could choose anything out of my hip hop archive, but they would have to say why they were attracted to that particular image. And when they first started drawing and all of this, we had a list of questions. So we got these 10 artists and we had a little exhibition in my loft and 500 people turned up, which was insane. It was a summer day and People really loved this work. It seemed to mean a lot, and we started to show the work in other places. We, we were showing it in the meatpacking district at a gallery there, and Zephyr happened to be walking by. He popped in, and he was like, "I want to do <laughs> one," and that's really. how it started growing. You know, Futura was painting a mural on a house in the street, and I went down there with Say and We were like, "Do you want to do a mashup?" And he did one. It was just a great project and it really built it this kind of like little mashup community in the end. And I would do portraits of all the artists. That was the other thing as a sidebar. So, you know, we had Ash, we had Pink, obviously Say, I'm trying to think of all the different artists, Futura, just legends, old and new, SES, all sorts of great people did amazing work Part a lot of different artists and I was taking, of course, and I was taking photographs of them. And then I got signed to this gallery in Los Angeles called the Fahey Klein gallery. And they helped me with these hat and beard guys to do a book. And we made a book of it, which you can still get on Amazon,
0: which I have.
1: Yes. Good. It's a good book. (laughs) It's
0: an excellent book.
1: Got like the rock stars of the graffiti era, I think, in that book, most of them. And it just turned out to be a really great thing. I would take like a little 11 by 14 collection and go to Geneva and show it in Geneva. I showed it in London. I showed it in Paris. It was in LA. It was in all sorts of places. This show, but it just brought a lot of love. And then during COVID, I started working with these guys, Morning Breath, and we have done a punk mashup now, which actually, yeah, it just launched a couple of weeks ago. So it's more kind of punky type artists, American artists working on my punk pictures. So same thing. We've got 10 artists and everybody from Mike Giant, Shepherd actually has done one and Say did one. My buddy Ian Wright in London did one. And these are also really cool. But it's all come out of this original idea of
0: says. I'm just thinking a lot of photographers would not want their images covered by somebody else's work. You know, photographers can be very particular about don't crop it, don't do it, don't touch it. This is like the final perfect image. And in your case, obviously, you were open to that, which I guess says something about you.
1: Be reinvented and reimagined by artists that I love and admire. It was an honor for me to have somebody like Lee Canona's draw on my Chuck D picture. I think it brings a whole new life to them. And I like to collaborate with people. So this is like the perfect, perfect thing, to be honest. And it also brought me into a whole world. I admired these artists, but I didn't personally know them. Now I know them and count many of them as friends. And there's a story behind every mashup. and. It really is a really great project, and I'm very happy. It's like reinventing something and giving it new life, breathing new life into it, and giving it to a new audience.
0: As we were started talking, you had been meeting with an editor working on a new book. Can you tell us what that's all about?
1: Yes. Well, <laughs> I've always wanted to do a book, like a kind of monograph of my history, of all of this stuff we've been talking about. Been taking photographs now for four decades. That's a long time. I've published about five books at least. And I always wanted to have a collection. You can see the trajectory going from punk through to Dior, shall we say. I was looking for a publisher and I'd reached out to a few people. COVID hit and somehow or another. I found these amazing people, Drago, that are in Italy, and it turns out there are sort of published books by a lot of people like Esteban Oriol and Futura, who are friends. So they are working on this book with me. It's uh, tentatively entitled Rebels from Punk to Dior, and it's going to cover my 40 years. And yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> right Woo-hoo. now, my studio is completely plastered from floor to ceiling. I think there's about 300 photos on the wall right now and I'm trying to edit them.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Congratulations. That's such good news.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited about it. And also in that collection will be some of the pictures that I took for paper. Oh, yeah. So, yep. I just found that picture of that group Shazork. Remember that? Oh
0: shit! Yes, I do. Right. Um, and who was in that? There was was that. Uh, I forget.
1: It's Lady Bunny. A uh, uh, Lady
0: Bunny? No shit. Um,
1: what's his face from Delight? Uh, Kier, the DJ, uh, uh, Dimitri. Dimitri.
0: Yeah. Dimitri, Lady right. Bunny,
1: and I can't remember the other name of the other drag artist. Uh, Sister Dementia, maybe? Oh, yes,
0: that could be, yeah. I
1: mean, they look really amazing. So there's that one and Andre Walker and, you know, Isabel Toledo and Ruben. That's part of my fashion bit. So the book is pretty much, so it's punk and hip hop. And then it's the streets. There's a whole section on streets, which would be East L.A. gangs, Midwest, uh, New York Street portraits, and the Indy 500 that I documented last year, which was really crazy. Things from Detroit, all sorts of things. And then it's a big thing about creatives, which includes, you know, Marcus Samuelson and Martha Cooper and Keith Haring. I'm just looking on the wall now. George Clinton, Lee Bowery—it's
0: it. yeah, like a it's you. huge your life. It's it's our life. You. It's uh, you know it's everything sweet. that's happened in uh, the last four exactly. years. I can't wait.
1: So it's... I know. Yeah, and then the end of it is the fashion thing. Everything from Levi's—I did their 2018 campaign to Dior to paper and interview magazine shoots, all the rest of it. So, this is my life, as they say.
0: All right. Well, what a life. Jeanette Beckman, thank you so much for being on my show today.
1: Thank you, David.
0: You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.